So, we are looking now at chapter 7 of our confession. Of God's covenant. And if I'm not mistaken, I'll rely on Caleb to correct me if I am mistaken. Um, I think this is the first chapter where there are major, major departures from the Westminster in content. Um, this is a short chapter. There are three paragraphs. The Westminster has six paragraphs. And among other differences, in the Westminster there is explicit language referring to the covenant of works, where in this chapter you will not find the words covenant of works, even though the content of it is here. And the words covenant of works show up in chapter 19. And perhaps, obviously, the most pertinent difference is the identity of the covenant of grace where the Westminster says explicitly, there are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Um, the Presbyterian affirmation is that the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant, and at least some, for some reason I think some would quibble with this, the Mosaic covenant is also the covenant of grace. Some of them would say it's covenant of grace. Some of them obviously would say it's not. Um, we would deny that they are the covenant of grace, but point to the covenant of grace. And faith is still shown to be efficacious for life in these covenants. Nonetheless, there are differences. So, why are there so many differences here? Among them, you're not going to find aggressive anti pado baptist language in this chapter. It's not the goal of the Baptists here to tear down the Presbyterian view, but it's actually their goal to show what they have in common, especially. Because we call it the 1689, but it was actually published, I believe, in 1677, and was only allowed to be publicly affirmed in 1689, because prior to that it was illegal. And so, this being freshly able to be shared publicly, they're not looking to knock people in the teeth. They're looking to show we're not heretics. You don't have to be afraid of us. We affirm a lot of the same things you do. So, with a lot of that introductory stuff out of the way, looking at chapter 7, paragraph 1 shows the general necessity of a covenant. Paragraph 2 shows the complication of sin and the offerings of the covenant of grace. And paragraph 3 shows the revelation of the covenant of grace. So, beginning, paragraph 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. And we're going to be doing this multiple times but the, the confession's building on itself. You're, gonna, you're hearing themes you should find familiar. Um, the owing obedience to God by virtue of Him being Creator. We've seen this already in chapter 2, paragraph 2. 
Um, the last part of that, to him, God is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them, that's his due as God the creator. We also um, see references to chapter 4 in creation and the state in which man was created. But one of the things that this paragraph is trying to help us with we need to get any idea out of our minds that good works obligate God in any way. That I do something good, that means God owes me something. And we think this way generally, just as human beings. We're wired to think this way. Just talk to any random person that doesn't know the Lord. They're, not going, they're typically not going to say, yeah, I'm going to hell. They're typically going to say, yeah, things are fine. Why? Well, I don't kick the dog when I go to work. And I, w- I walked an old lady across the street last week, and you know, I gave some money to the beggar on the side of the road a few days ago. I'm good. I've done these things. God owes me, right? <laughs> this is the, the general thought process that we have. And what you see in, this, in the language of this chapter is your good works... Don't obligate God in any way. And even in a perfected state, even Adam in the garden, if God did not condescend to offer him something, his perfect, his perfect life with good works wouldn't obligate God in any way. God's not obligated to give him anything. And there's a couple of wonderful passages that point this out. Luke 17, verses 9 through 10. Does he, that is the master, Master of a house with servants. Does he, the master, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The implied answer is no. You did what was commanded. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The idea being, the illustration, a servant is obligated to obey the master. And the master is not obligated to pat the servant on the head or offer any kind of reward for good things done. That's just what you're supposed to do. And in the same way, we, as created beings, owe obedience to God, and God does not owe anything to us upon our obedience. That's just what we're supposed to do. That's our role as created things. And perhaps more pointedly is Job 35, verse 7. If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? The answer is nothing. And so we find in this language, if Adam, if God had not condescended to interact with Adam, and Adam lived a perfect life, full of good works, God owes him nothing. And so much less in our situation where we live in the curse of Adam's disobedience, does he owe us anything because of our righteousness? He owes us nothing. So the confession says, if life is to be had, God must condescend to meet us. And he does this by way of covenant. So, what is a covenant? It is a condescension of God. Yes. 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 You want to? A sworn promise. A sworn promise. And especially 
usually has connotations of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. There's stipulations is a good word. It's an oath that has consequences. It's not just an open-ended promise, although God does that a lot. But there's an idea that there are, there are strings attached to this. And there are things that are going to happen for faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Um, I have a quote from Mark Jones. We read him a few years ago. Um, it was a book on Christology we read in our afternoon service. At its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. And as Caleb argued last, or not last week, this was a few weeks ago, where we did look at what we call in theology the covenant of works. The idea that we can see a covenant in the garden. A covenant between God and Adam in which there are blessings offered for obedience and there are curses offered for disobedience. And we see the chief curse, Genesis 2, 15-17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We see blessings in the covenant implied, especially in God's Sabbath rest prior to the fall, the idea being just as God works and then rest, Adam, if you work, you will have rest. We're getting a little bit into paragraph two here because paragraph two talks about what happens because Adam sinned. So we're just going to jump into paragraph two. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So, we might ask ourselves, well, man uh, brought himself under the curse of the law. That might strike us as strange language at first, because uh, when we think of the curse of the law, we think of the Mosaic Covenant, we think of those curses in Deuteronomy 28, that's just our natural word association with these things. But we're talking about Adam here. That Adam's the one who brought us under the curse of the law. And so, a few passages I want to look at. I think Isaiah 24 can be really helpful in considering these things. So we ask, what curse of the law did Adam bring us under? Helpful passage just to argue that there was a covenant in the garden. Not that the titles of the chapters are inspired, but they can be helpful. The ESV has judgment on the whole earth for uh, Isaiah 24. And I think the context makes it pretty clear that this is universal, whole world, outside of Israel language. Verses 1 through 3 give us 
a lot of this. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. Should be abundantly clear. God's talking about everybody. I was, I self-edited. Now I'm going to self-edit, self-edit. He, he's talking about everybody. <laughs> he's talking about everybody that exists. All social classes, all social standings, all people. And he goes on, verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Now, are Gentiles under the Mosaic covenant? No. Gentiles are not under the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was made with Abraham's seed. And we see this connection in the New Testament. It's when you see circumcision obliges you to obey the whole law, it's Abraham's tribe, Abraham's descendants that are obliged to the Mosaic law, meaning if you're not circumcised, you're not obligated. So what are we talking about here? How can we understand that there, is, there are laws and statutes of God that have been violated by everybody and that there's a covenant that has been violated by everybody? You can. <laughs> it, was, it was rhetorical, but that's okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, Abrahamic can be, uh, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic are all specific to the Jewish people. Noahic is universal, but there's no way for us to break that covenant, right? There's, God just promises that he's never going to again flood the earth. And so we need another covenant that all creation has violated. And when we see the blessings and curses of a covenant in Genesis 2, when we see Adam as a federal head that stands for all people, he needs to have a covenant that he stands as federal head of to be a federal head. I think it only makes sense with this chapter. I don't think there's another way to read it than to have a concept of a covenant of works with Adam in the garden that all the world is under and has violated in Adam. Also, for a more direct passage, we always have Hosea 6-7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And we see in Romans 2 that there is a law that is written on the hearts of Gentiles not just Jews. And again, where do we find this law? It is, I would argue, the moral law of God that is codified in the Ten Commandments, but is written on the hearts of all men. Adam fell under the curse of this law, and in him we all fall with him. This is the complication that sin brings to God's good condescension to offer life in covenant. And again, in, just to tease us out more, that first covenant, we just said, does offer life. 
but that first covenant offers life on the basis of perfect, perpetual obedience. Adam, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, or the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For of the day that you eat it, meaning one strike you're out, you shall surely die. Perfect, perpetual obedience. So, this covenant can't offer us life anymore. We, we have to have another avenue, another condescension from God, another covenant by which life can be given. Again, God's not obligated to give us this, but he does. And the paragraph, the paragraph two goes into this. It pleased the Lord after the fall. Again, God's not obligated. No one's twisting his arm. No one bargained with him. It pleased the Lord of his own will to make a covenant of grace. And in Reformed theology, this is, these are major categories. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. And so, the covenant of works no longer able to offer life. Now we must have another avenue for life. And that other avenue of life, that other condescension by way of covenant is what we call the covenant of grace. And here... We are still saved by works, but it is Christ's works. Not our works in any way, shape, or form. And we, we see this in such wonderful passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we do our law gospel readings, it's at least my intention that we see our failure in the law, what the law asks of us and how we fall short, but in the gospel, how Christ fulfilled that law and obeyed where we cannot obey and gives life as a result of it. What does the paragraph say is required of us to have life in Christ, life and salvation in Christ? Faith. Yes. The work of faith. <laughs> where, where do we see that faith or belief gives us life? Romans 1. Where are you thinking specifically? Mm hmm. I'm thinking, yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Very clear that faith is the instrument by me by which life is applied to those in the new covenant, the covenant of grace. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, Romans 3. Yes. Uh, yep. Five. Yep. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot in Romans. I mean, I have Romans 8, 1 through 4, Romans 10, 9 through 13. I do want to go to Romans 10 because it's just a really beautiful... I mean, it's all beautiful, but 
the, the power of it, the, the force of the statement. Romans 10, starting in the middle of the paragraph, because, in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we see in this paragraph, the offerings of the covenant of grace is life and salvation. We see that what is required to have life and salvation is faith. And we see that faith is provided in the Holy Spirit. The final words of the paragraph say that, uh, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And so that even faith itself is a gift. And very wonderful passage in Ezekiel 36. Many of you probably know off the top of your head the content of these verses. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The gift of the Holy Spirit brings a new heart, new desires, the ability to do good works. And so we see in this covenant of grace, it's all gift. All promise. And so, this is a very brief sketch of what's provided in the Gospel. And if you just scan through, you might even remember from your prior readings of the Confession, the following chapters are meant to go into greater detail into what is provided in the, in the covenant of grace. Here you're just getting a brief outline as kind of a foundational chapter to introduce these topics, introduce these subjects. And so it goes on into paragraph 3 to talk about how the covenant of grace is revealed. Because this is probably the biggest discrepancy between us and the Pado-Baptists, the Presbyterians. Um, this covenant is revealed in the Gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that, has that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were, that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. And so we have... Um, Covenant of grace revealed to Adam through the promise of the seed of the woman. And Caleb's going to be 
saying a lot more about this in a little bit because he's preaching on Genesis 3, 14, and 15. But this is rightly called the first instance of the gospel, the proto-evangelium, the first taste of the covenant of grace. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we see the prophecy of a better federal head than Adam, one who would succeed in his role where Adam failed. And because I can't help myself, because I think this is really cool, I want to look at Luke 3 and 4 for typology, just to get one instance in which we see this in action, one we don't typically go to, to see Christ as the second Adam, the better Adam. The last verse of chapter 3 is the end of the genealogy of Christ given there. And it says that um, Christ is the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, Adam here is called the son of God. And we could even say he was born as a sinless son of God. And really... Wonderfully, I don't know how Luke could possibly have not done this intentionally. But when you go to chapter 4, we go to Christ's temptation in the wilderness, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was washed, or was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. Christ is driven into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, right there, Adam is called the Son of God. Christ, here the devil says, if you are the Son of God, Adam is taking up that office that Adam had and is fulfilling it perfectly. Where Adam... Uh, crumbles under the temptation of the devil in paradise. Christ succeeds and triumphs over the temptation of the devil in the wilderness and in poverty. And so, there is obviously so much more we could say here, but this is just a taste of what the Bible has to say about how Christ is the true and better Adam. And as Christ or as Adam failed in his federal headship over his people, bringing all his posterity into sin, Christ succeeds in his federal headship and brings all his posterity into eternal life. Are you raising your hand? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. So, the confession goes on. This is revealed to Adam first in Genesis 3.15 by the promise of the seed of the woman. And it's revealed by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. This gives us what we understand to be the whole Old Testament being farther steps, progressive revelation, showing us until the fulfillment of the new covenant, the fullness of the new covenant is revealed in Christ. In reading Renahan on the confession, some really interesting um, language. Abraham in Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9, 
Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So you even have this language of a gospel preached to Abraham. And you also have it with Moses, which is interesting. Hebrews 4, verse 2. For good news, the gospel, came to us just as to them, that's the wilderness generation, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. But all I'm pointing out right now, there's gospel threads throughout the Old Testament. You see it with Abraham explicitly. You see it with Moses explicitly. And just to... Just, uh, you see it uh, culminating in Christ, and especially in Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That Christ is the culmination of what everything in the Old Testament is pointing to. This communication through uh, various means and prophets and all these things. It's all pointing to Christ, the final revelation. There's a lot we could say about the differences between us and the Presbyterians here. And partly because of time and partly because I'm nervous to get into such a (laughs) uh, theologically heavy debate. I don't think we're going to quite dive into that. But just a note here, again... The Presbyterian position is that the covenant of grace is the Abrahamic or the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace, along with other covenants in the Old Testament. We do not affirm that, and we believe those covenants typify the new covenant. I think that's all I'm going to say for now, unless you have questions about it specifically. And we see that this covenant of grace is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. So in, co- in covenant theology, in Reformed theology, we have three major covenants. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. Here is referenced what we call the covenant of redemption. And what we have here is an understanding that there was a covenant made between, within the Godhead about how God's people would be saved and especially that God the Son would be involved in paying for the salvation of the elect. We can use this language looking at 2 Timothy 1. Second Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Here's a reference to a purpose of God before the ages began and a choosing of those that would be saved before the ages began. We can go to Titus, Titus 1. 
It's almost exactly the same language. Um, the greeting. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And I don't think it's as direct, but I think the opening words of the high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17 can also speak to this. But for sake of time, we're not going to go there. Um, The last words of the paragraph, and it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon the terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. And this is essential, that we understand that there is only life in the covenant of grace. There is only life in Christ. We are all born in Adam, and there is no life to be had in Adam. And we could go back to Romans 3 and see a lot of this, but we understand foundationally everyone in the Old Testament, every Old Testament saint is saved by Christ, saved by faith that is fulfilled in Christ. And we see this most clearly in Hebrews 11, most explicitly in Hebrews 11. And verse 2 especially, but we, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their com- commendation. In other words, it was faith, not works of the law, not works um, to fulfill Adam's covenant that justifies them, but it's faith that is what justifies them. And we see who the, of, the people of old are because that's what the rest of chapter 11 goes on to talk about. These Old Testament saints and how they were all faithful men to some degree. So, are there any comments or questions at this point? Right. wake up one day and have faith of our own 
and then we go to God with our faith as a currency and say, I will give you so right. much faith and you will give me so much grace for my sin. Right. We are actually bestowed on the faith yes. that we, he tells us, this is the requirement that I have for my grace, but the faith will be sufficient through my son. Mm-hmm. So I think it's easy to walk the line of thinking that works, I want require, I want fulfill covenants, Mm-hmm. But the works are just a sign, and the works flow from grace through the Son, mm-hmm. and they also flow from works performed by the Son, who is part of the Godhead. And in, the, in, that, in that way, this covenant is better than the last, because there will never be a shortcoming. Like, Christ will never not give enough mm-hmm. grace, or he will never not have enough works to satisfy the terms of the covenant. Whereas in the previous covenant, we clearly sinned in Adam. And so you can see the lack of a fulfillment because of the shortcoming that was expressed on our end of that covenant. And, the way mm-hmm. and I think you're touching on, we can get really confused in our language about these things real quick. And it's, it's really hard to be precise all the time in our language. Um, and I probably spoke imprecisely even this morning about a lot of this, but like we can say we're not saved by our faith. Faith isn't what saves us. It's Christ who saves us. And it's Christ's grace that's given to us through the vehicle of our faith, but our faith isn't what pays for my sins, like you were pointing at. It's not like, it's a good word to think of faith as currency, and if I have enough faith, then I can pay down my debt. That's not a proper way to think about it at all. But it's Christ who, it's in him that everything's paid. And faith is a gift, which is why it's so important that the confession has that last bit in paragraph two about the Holy Spirit being the one who gives us faith. Because otherwise, like Caleb was jabbing, like uh, we could see faith as a work as a new work that is meant to be a new covenant of works. And we don't want to go there. That's not what we're trying to do. Were you going to add something, Caleb? I, I was just going to like make that explicit. Like, yeah. Neo-Nomianism, a new law created yeah. by God that you made a lesser standard of the law so you have to have faith. Yeah. Right? That is uh, just a lesser covenant of works. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to end here, but we can talk more after. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for what these faithful men have thought through and written down for us. We pray that it would be a benefit for us as we think through these things and seek to understand your word better. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.